Hi, I'm Madhvi Romani. And I'm Rena Grobe. And this is Misinformed, the podcast for lazy but smart people. Every week, we'll be discussing a new topic or trend, so you can stay informed the easy way. So Rena, what are we talking about this week? Today we're doing another special edition of Real Talk. And today we have my good friend Elena here with me, who is going to be talking to us about diabetes. I wanted Elena to talk to us about this because as someone living with diabetes, she has first-hand experience when it comes to this topic, but I also feel like diabetes is a topic that you kind of hear the word a lot in society, but not a lot of people know about it. They don't know the realities of it. They don't know the difference between diabetes 1 and diabetes 2, and I feel like there's just so many misconceptions around it. So, welcome Elena, welcome to Misinformed. Thank you, I'm so pleased to be here, honored to be representing people with diabetes. <laughs> Although, I should say, I'm definitely not a health professional, just an individual, type 1, and uh, yeah, really thrilled to be here on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely, and I think... Specifically, that personal view is super important. Again, yeah, we're not doctors, but I think that you could watch documentaries about diabetes, but Mm -hmm. as with every disease, it's so personal that Mm -hmm. just speaking to people one-on-one about it is really great. So just to begin with, Elena, could you tell us about your journey with diabetes? When were you diagnosed? What type of diabetes do you have? Definitely. I really love talking about diabetes. Um, I think it's something that a lot of people are unaware of, don't know about. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's something that I really love to, to share with others. So I was diagnosed when I was 15 and I was living in Germany at the time where I grew up and feel very privileged to have accessed such an amazing healthcare system, have healthcare and to be in an environment that promotes self-care is first of all, such a privilege and with a disease type one that's really manageable. If you have access to healthcare and if you have the education on how to do self-care, it's something that is a very manageable condition that you live with. So yeah, I was diagnosed here in Germany and a lot of common symptoms that people experience when type one is onset is being very thirsty, being very hungry and weight loss. So I remember just feeling like I couldn't get enough to drink. Like I would drink an entire bottle of water and I'd still be really thirsty. And similarly, I was losing weight even though I was eating a lot and had a lot of hunger. And I could talk about why that happens in layman terms. So what happens is we have our pancreas and inside of our pancreas, we have our islet cells and islet cells are what produce insulin. And what you can think about with insulin is it's essentially a key and it It allows access into the cells for sugar to go through. So when we eat food, it breaks down into proteins, it breaks down to fats, and it breaks down to sugars. And those sugars need a way to get brought into the cell to be used for energy, and insulin does that. So with type 1 diabetes, is there's not really a clear understanding in the medical community of why it happens, although they really understand the pathway, they understand you know, all the elements involved, but the trigger to turn off the islet cells or for them to become dormant and to stop producing in- insulin is still unknown. They know the pathway, but they don't really know why. But essentially, the symptoms that I was describing, where you get really thirsty or really hungry, they happen because um, it's actually kind of cool how all your body talks to each other. When you're eating food and it's breaking down to these core elements, the lipids, the fats, the proteins, and the carbohydrates or sugar, 
and you're not able to, to bring that sugar into your cell to be used for energy because you have no insulin. Your pancreas just sort of stops producing insulin slowly, slowly. And so your blood sugar ends up going up. There's all this sugar that's floating around in your blood and it doesn't have the insulin to bring it into the cell. So you start to get really thirsty because one of your systems is saying, hey, your blood sugar is really concentrated. We need to dilute this. Like, let's get thirsty. We need to sort of dilute this blood sugar. So you get super thirsty and you end up actually peeing out a lot of essential minerals and you can have other system failures because of that. Just basically your mineral and your vitamin count gets really off balance. And then the other reason why you start to lose really a lot of weight quite quickly, because you're not getting any energy from the food you're eating. So you essentially start to burn fat and you start to burn fat in places that you don't really want to burn fat from long-term. So long-term high blood sugar can be really dangerous and something that you want to mitigate with (laughs) bringing the insulin into the game. But essentially, when you come into a hospital, the symptoms that people usually have are excessive thirst, excessive hunger, weight loss, and other things that could result from that if you you don't diagnose it early enough. I was listening to an episode of Maintenance Phase, which is my favorite podcast, Mm -hmm. about diabetes. And they were saying that one of the old school way of diagnosing diabetes, I believe they said in India, was that they would have people pee on the ground. And then if the ants walked towards it, because the ants were attracted to sugar, it was a sign that you had diabetes. <laughs> of course, obviously, they didn't have, like, they didn't know what diabetes was. They just knew that this worked. And I think that's really fascinating. So I just felt like adding that in here for no apparent reason. Yeah. And the, I went to an amazing kinder clinic here in Germany. And they did almost a two-week session where you're you're brought in, you're educated on the history of diabetes. Again, that was one of the things I learned too, where it's you have sweet urine because you're basically, after a long time period of being at a high blood sugar, you're passing ketones and you're passing sugar in your urine and it's extra sweet. So that's another way that they used to diagnose. So I learned about that in my little education session when I first came to the clinic. Wow. Okay. So if I understood this correctly, diabetes one is where your body stops producing the key Mm -hmm. that you need to open the cells to let the sugar in. Mm -hmm. And so you inject insulin, which is the key. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So there's a pretty fundamental difference between type one and type two diabetes. Type two is much more well-known, I would say, and it's more assumed because of all the diabetes in the world, the large majority, almost 90%, is type 2 diabetes compared to type 1. Type 1 is also known as juvenile diabetes. You usually get it as a child, anywhere from a few days old to being, you know, 21 is the cutoff, they say, but I've known a lot of people who have gotten it in their 20s. But type 2, they really understand type 2 a lot better as a condition that uh, is environmentally and genetically based. And that's why you get it 30% genetic, 70% environmental. And and again, some people can get it (laughs) non-traditionally when you're much younger, but traditionally it operates differently. So essentially type two works with, it's about insulin resistance. So you usually find in people who are older and there's a genetic link to it as well. So basically when you're producing the insulin out of the pancreas, When it goes to grab one cell of the sugar and sort of bring it into the cell, one unit of insulin to one unit of sugar might not be enough. You might need like five units of insulin or eight units of insulin or 10 units of insulin to try to get that one sugar cell, one sugar unit, I should say, into the cell. Or it could just be that it doesn't connect as well. Like the responder that lives on the cell, it's the wrong shape and it doesn't really connect with the shape of the insulin to unlock it. 
So what you can do sometimes for type 2 is you can take medication like metformin is one that people have heard about a lot. And a lot of people need to be on insulin therapy where they where they inject insulin. But metformin is something that can basically help deal with that resistance or that ill-fitting mm-hmm. <laughs> where the insulin doesn't really fit with the cell like capture landing spot, I would say. Yeah, so I think that's the biggest difference. They both have to do with insulin. They both have to do with sugar, but the mechanism around it is quite different. And there's also, you know, gestational diabetes. There's people who have hypoglycemia, which is when you go low, low blood sugar. It's not a diagnosis of diabetes, but you can be hypoglycemic and need to take frequent snacks and sort of drop low throughout the day out of a normal range. And there's other medications and conditions that can cause hyperglycemia, which is when you go really high, Mm -hmm. um, that aren't, again, related to diabetes. So there's conditions that deal with and around this insulin and sugar, but type 1 and type 2 are different in those ways. I've heard of women getting diabetes when they're pregnant. Yes, that's gestational diabetes. Oh, that's gestational. There we go. Uh I should have... Duh, right. So it's a condition that only shows up during that time. I actually don't really know much about the mechanism surrounding that. Um, I can make some guesses, but I won't speak too much on that yeah. since I'm not, <laughs> since I'm not so aware that of that. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. So can you tell me about your daily life with diabetes? Like how does it impact your routine? Is mm-hmm. it all? Mm-hmm. Well, now it's been close to 15 years and I um Let's see. How does it impact my day? I really, it's so normalized at this point. I don't think of it as something that impacts my day. I just think about it as my life, to be honest. Mm. Brushing your hair and brushing your teeth and injecting your long-acting insulin and going about your day. I have Um, to say, as someone who's known you for a while, I keep forgetting you have diabetes. (laughs) Just because like it's I don't know. Like, I don't. Yeah. Well, I feel like I, I was, first of all, really lucky to be the age I was when I was diagnosed. I was 15 and lucky to be in the place I was um, where there was such great access to healthcare. And I was in an age where I was really like ready emotionally to take on a sort of a new way of living life. And it's not really a new way of living life. It's just like an extra step in some of the things that you do and a learning curve. So I think there's a lot of things that helped me be successful in integrating it in a, in a healthy way and in a productive way. And I should also say that there's so many, like every person who has diabetes, it's very individualistic and as it should be. Like even if I were to go in for a surgery now, a lot of times doctors would trust me to manage my own sugars more so than they would because if someone living with it, like everyone knows how to manage it best themselves. So what I say might not be ring true for everyone else who who lives with it. So I guess to start from, there's there's two types of insulin that I work with primarily. There's a lot of different types of insulin that have different activation modes. But for me, I use a long-acting insulin and a short-acting insulin. The long-acting insulin covers all your base needs. So even if you were fasting and you weren't eating, you'd still need insulin. People think you just need insulin for food, but there's other functions in your body that cause hormone fluctuations that you need insulin to cover. So for example, like waking up in the morning, you you wake up for a reason. You know, it could be the sunshine, it could be other things, but there's also this rush of hormones that kind of wakes you up. And with that rush of hormone, it actually raises your blood sugar. So you'll notice that insulin needs are actually a lot higher in the morning for most individuals because there's this raising of blood sugar. Now, I should just clarify the connection between insulin and blood sugar. To raise blood sugar, you need sugar. To lower blood sugar, you need insulin. Okay. So sugar raises, insulin depresses. Okay. Um, sometimes those are understood to be part of the equation, but <laughs> which direction can be a bit unclear. 
<laughs> I guess I have fine-tuned how much long, long-acting insulin I need in relation to short-acting insulin. Again, this is dependent on individuals, and it, it's a combination of your age, your body weight, your exercise levels. There's a lot of factors that go into sort of calculating how much long-acting insulin do I need. If I were to fast all day, the goal is I wouldn't drop low, I wouldn't go high. My base insulin would remain really, really steady. Um, and that's the goal of your baseline insulin is to just make sure that you're steady throughout the whole day, not like diving low or dropping up. So I actually take baseline insulin both in the morning and the evening. And then short acting insulin you take when you consume food. And so you get pretty good at counting carbs. <laughs> I remember being in a hospital setting and weighing out, you know, different pieces of food. And here in Germany, they have a way of measuring food. Um, I love this. It's the most German thing ever. <laughs> So they have a fixed amount of carbs that they call Einbruteinheit. Which for our English listener means one bread unit. Yes, one BE. So moving to the States was actually a really funny experience to explain like, oh, I measure food by, by Bruteinheit, by unit of bread. And it's a, it was a different system there. <laughs> so it was pretty fun to, to go back and forth with my doctors there. But yeah, essentially, you learn pretty quickly how to count carbs, and there's a lot of different types of carbs we know. There's simple sugars, there's more complex sugars. Think about having like a glass of juice versus like a piece of bread with butter, and how that gets processed in your body, and how long it takes to break down, and how, how complex that carbohydrate is, and that affects your blood sugar. I guess the point of this whole thing is there's a lot of things that affect your blood sugar. There's a lot of different ways to manage it. <laughs> uh, the best tool I've had that I use in my everyday life is a continuous glucose monitor. It's called a CGM and it's this awesome little pod that you strap onto your body for 10 days and it updates to your phone in real time via Bluetooth so I can see where my blood sugar is now, where it's trending, where it's been. And it's a really helpful data analytic tool. Wow. Um, and then I use injections. A lot of people use pens. Some people use pods. I just use straight up syringes <laughs> because they're really easy to travel with. They're affordable. They don't take up a lot of space. I move and travel a lot. And it's just really nice to have something that I take out. I do the math. I inject and then I put it away. And it's not, it feels, it's always felt really good for me. I've played mm -hmm. around with different types of therapies and different types of equipments. And this has just worked really well for me. There's some limitations, but yeah, I'd say how does it, I, I really don't think of it separate of my life. It's just math that's happening as I go throughout the day and, and managing as it comes. And what's it like traveling with that? Like I imagine going through airport security with syringes is a bit of a situation. How do you navigate that? It's definitely not a situation. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Anywhere I've traveled, anytime I've traveled, I have never been second guessed. I've never been questioned. I remember the first time I traveled with diabetes, I came equipped with a letter from my doctor. I came equipped with all of my receipts for my pharmacies, like because I traveled with needles and insulin. And the thing with insulin is it's a medication that you have to keep cool. And so you have to usually move with ice packs or some sort of tool mechanism. I use these cool Frio bags that keep the insulin, a thermosensitive medication below outside temperature. But I've never been stopped. The first time I was, I, I even told them before I put it through security, I said, by the way, there's needles in here. There's this in here. And they sort of looked at me and shrugged and they're like, we don't care. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they didn't want to see my papers. They didn't care because a lot of people travel with all kinds of medical devices. And I've never, ever been second guessed, had an issue anywhere. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's really cool to know. Mm -hmm. Makes it easy. Yeah. 
<laughs> and so, like, since you've been diagnosed with diabetes, what sort of advances have you seen in the technology? You just mentioned a bunch of different ones. Could you, like, tell us about that a little bit? So, you know, I sort of ex- I alluded to this earlier that there are different types of insulin, some that are long-acting, some that are short-acting, depending on what you're using it for. Within the short-acting, there's ones that, you know, have a range of three hours. Uh, there's ones that have a range of four hours with peaks in the middle. Um, you know, if you're in a different stage of life where you're eating the same thing, have the same routine, there's ones that last all day. Mm-hmm. So depending on your lifestyle and who you are, there's a lot of fluctuation. That's been there since I've been diagnosed in the past 15 years. What come around is pump therapy where essentially you have insulin living inside a pump that you uh, stick on your body somewhere, usually on your arm or your stomach, your leg, and you can bolus, which is another word of essentially program a meter to, to give little spurts of insulin over a time period. So for example, when I inject with a needle... I'm injecting the full amount for the food in that one moment. Mm-hmm. Okay. But the advantage of bolusing is that with little drops that come out continuously, it acts more like a pancreas would. Mm-hmm. And you're able to kind of program how much you want to come out when. So if I'm eating pizza, it's going to take me seven to eight hours to really process that <laughs> compared to an apple. And... What that means, if I inject all of the insulin for that pizza right at once, it doesn't really mimic how a pancreas works. You know, I could actually drop low within the first two hours because I didn't need all that at once. It's not being processed all at once. Compared to if you were bolusing, I could say, I want 30% now and I want the the rest of the 70% of the insulin for this pizza to be delivered over a six-hour period. So you can be really strategic and really intentional about how that works. I think it's also great technology. For young children, you know, a lot of kids are afraid of needles. They don't want to be poked and pinched. And parents don't want to do that. So, it, and it's great for other care providers like school teachers, nurses, friends, parents to like have a sense of how kids are doing without having to test their blood sugar annually and have to inject them. So the advancements that have come out is pump therapy has become, there's been a lot more variety that showed up. It's become really effective. You can microdose very small amounts even. And what's come out that's been really transformative for me has been the continuous glucose monitor, which Mm -hmm. tells me where my blood sugar is at all times and where I'm trending. And that's been oh amazing. (laughs) Now, I should say it is a huge privilege to be able to access this kind of technology. And it's not accessible or affordable to a lot of people, which is really unfortunate and should be, especially when it's such a manageable condition where if you're able to, you know, have the self-care knowledge and the means to take care of yourself, it's just going to result in better in better impact for that individual, their family, the healthcare system, the society, and unfortunately cost and access is a, is a is a big systemic barrier when you talk about diabetes. You live in Uganda right now. You're, well, I was going to say you're originally from the U.S., but I kind of think of you as being German. <laughs> but you've also lived in Germany and in the United States. Could mm-hmm. you maybe tell us the difference between the healthcare systems and like how easy it was to access insulin, what's covered where? I mean, you don't have to go into a lot of detail, obviously, but just maybe like an overview of... Mm-hmm. how that's been. Yeah, definitely. And something exciting that I just learned about that came out in the States, which has been technology that's been worked on for a long time, has been a closed loop system where a continuous glucose monitor 
something that measures your blood sugar in real time actually connects to a pod that delivers insulin and they talk to each other almost like a false pancreas. And that's just been released on the market after testing. And I know someone who's one of the first recipients and able to sort of get online and get used to it. So that's a potentially huge, huge, amazing piece of technology that could transform a lot of people's lives. But to your question about differences where you are. (laughs) Healthcare is something I feel quite passionate about. And I believe that health is a human right at the bottom line. And I think Germany has a really strong model for a healthcare system that has been successful. The interface of both public and private healthcare systems existing simultaneously and serving their citizens and having a high quality of of service. High quality service. Yeah. Yeah. Germany has a really high quality service. I had a really positive diagnosis experience is what I'll say here in Germany, actually. Just really quality care. The fact that I could go into a children's clinic and be there for almost a week and a half to two weeks And there was such a concentrated effort in making me the decision maker and empowering me as the person to take care of myself. And the focus on self-care in a German system is unparalleled. I haven't found that in other places. Just from the get-go, we had a lot of classes lined up that would teach me about, you know, the history, but then also what is it and how do you manage it? And I even had a book where I would track everything that happened in my day and then study it and try to understand like, why did this happen? What would I do? It was really like class. It was like schooling on how to be your best self. Now there's there's things like that that exist in the States where there's really amazing centers like the Jocelyn Center. There's great diabetes centers, but to access it is really inaffordable for a lot of people and therefore inaccessible. So in the States, I'm not saying that there's a lack of quality healthcare, but there's a lack of access. And that's really unfortunate. Beyond that, there's like a lot of systemic issues around being able to access quality and healthy food. There's just bigger systemic issues that we can talk about and get lost in. But I will say, I'd say in the States, you know, I've really had amazing doctors as well, but I'm just shocked at the cost of it, even with quality healthcare, I was paying. A, a, and we know that in the states, without healthcare, insulin is, is being charged three hundred fifty, four hundred dollars a vial, depending. And there's a lot of movement in you know the government to try to pass laws that basically curb that really high market price for insulin, as 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 we should, <laughs> given the numbers of diabetes rising. I have a lot of rage. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I, can imagine. I have a lot of rage around the inaccessibility and the inaffordability of insulin in, in America. So yeah, care has been fantastic here. Care has been fantastic there. If you have great health care, that's what you need. <laughs> uh, if you don't, then it's not a great system. I'd say in Uganda, there are larger health care issues that are systemic around access for a lot of Ugandans, whether that's access to power or affordability to have a fridge in your home because it's a thermosensitive medication. So if you can't keep your insulin cold, it's going to mean that that insulin is not as effective. If you're in a place where you can't access a health facility easily that does have a fridge to keep thermosensitive medications, that means you're only showing up once a week, once a month to be able to get your shot for insulin. If you're not equipped to to manage it yourself or your your parent isn't equipped to to manage it for you, there's a public health system that is afford that is free and affordable to its citizens, but sometimes those health facilities are not well equipped with their commodities or their you know, insulin might not be there. You might have to buy it yourself as a as a patient. So I think there's a lot of more widespread issues that 
are linked to being a low-income country that citizens aren't afforded to by their government in terms of infrastructure. So I think in that setting, if you weren't wealthy, you would have a lot of trouble accessing and learning about and having, you'd have a lot of trouble getting the care you deserve. Mm. But you found it manageable living in Uganda. I did because I was able to go buy insulin. I was Mm -hmm. able to get transport to get to a facility that had insulin. I was able to keep that insulin in a fridge with me. I had the knowledge of how to care for myself. There was a clinic that I was working closely with that I know was working closely with the family who was diabetic. Young child was diabetic, but it was very hard for the family to be able to have that child come to the facility every day to get insulin shots. Ideally, you want to be taking multiple insulin shots every day with food. So just like access to a place that's able to give you the care is a barrier, especially if you're wanting to go to school. But then I know a family that was uh, that in, in Kampala, the capital city, that got really great care from an endocrinologist. They were able to access the, the insulin no problem. It's $30 for a vial if you buy it in any pharmacy in the, in the capital city. I'm sort of thinking of a like a rural, urban yeah distribution and like what the reality is for a lot of Ugandans compared to those that are, you know, wealthier living in a city setting. So yeah, it's hard to speak to an experience for an entire country, but I'd say generally there's a, there's a huge, there's a really disparate experience depending on your wealth and where you live and your access to healthcare and and what that healthcare looks like where you are. Do you have three things you could think about? (laughs) One thing that comes to mind is if you know someone who's diabetic, ask them about their diabetes. It's really helpful for me to have people in my life who understand diabetes, who understand what to do when I need something. Like if I'm going low, I love it when a friend's like, don't worry, I have a snack. Don't worry, I have honey. Don't worry, I've got something here. Or just understand like how to support me in moments. So I think that's one is just ask people about things that they're dealing with their life and how you can be a supportive person to them. There are some really funny diabetes memes out there. So if you just type in like diabetes type one memes, it's quite funny because it feels like a whole different language. I never felt so understood looking at it. There's just (laughs) some really funny specific memes that let you feel like there's a shared identity with other diabetics, which is pretty cool. The other thing that you can do is advocate within your municipality or your region or your representatives to make insulin affordable. You can write to your your congressman, your congresswoman, your state representatives and advocate that (laughs) insulin be affordable. Like not just it's covered by health insurance, so I can't afford it. But like as a drug or as a necessary life-saving medication, it is accessible and affordable to all who need it. Thank you so much, Elena. Thank you for coming on to Misinformed and talking to us about diabetes. It was so fun having you. Thanks for having me here. Awesome. Thank you for listening. Until next week. Goodbye. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also help us by supporting us on Patreon for as little as €4 Euro a month. Visit patreon.com slash misinformed. For links to all our sources and for our personal tips on what to watch and read, subscribe to our weekly newsletter at misinformed.substack.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed or email us your feedback, requests, or just to say hi misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.